Before we open God's word together, let's pray. God, thank you for uh, your love that has awakened us. Uh, God, thank you that, God, you called us out of the grave and into the light, Lord. Um, God, that is a, a gift of your grace that we did not earn on our own. It is uh, a marvelous miracle that you have brought to life inside each and every one of us. And just like last week when we celebrated Jesus walking out of the tomb, uh, triumphing over death, God, every day our very own salvation ought to remind us, God, that uh, you called us out of the grave and into the light, into life, God. And so we celebrate that today. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit as we open your word. Um, God, the same spirit that lives and dwells inside each and every one of us who is a, a child of yours, God, that same spirit inspired these words in the book of Hebrews that we're going to look at this morning. And that same spirit can take those words and impress them into our hearts. We pray that you would do that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, here's what I want you to do. Uh, I want you to open up your Bible. If you've got one there in front of you, if it's a hard copy, go ahead and flip your way back to Hebrews chapter 12. That's what we're going to be this morning. We're going to start in verse 3 and work our way down to 13. If you've got a digital device with the Bible on it, go ahead and uh, tap and swipe your way over to Hebrews chapter 12. And I want you to pause the video and actually read it there in the room. We've done this a few times now. Uh, and I want you to have a short conversation. So pause the video, have someone there in the room, read the passage. If you're somewhere by yourself, go ahead and read it out loud. There's something valuable to not just seeing, but to actually hearing the words of scripture. So read it out loud and then have a conversation there in the room or think through, if you're by yourself, two questions. What is the primary theme of this passage of scripture. It should be pretty obvious. The word shows up multiple times. And then here's the second question, which might require a little bit more thought or a little bit more discussion. Who's in charge? Who's in control? What's the primary theme? Who's in control? Pause the video, read the passage, Hebrews 12, 3 to 13, have that conversation. And when you're ready, unpause. All right, I'm going to pick us up here in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3. And that verse actually sets the context. In fact, it should remind us pretty much directly of what we saw in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It says this, Hebrews 12, 3. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, so that you won't grow weary and give up. Consider him. It's not the first time we've seen that encouragement to consider Jesus. That's appeared at other points in the book of Hebrews. And when we saw it before, it means the same thing that it does now. It's an active sort of considering. It, it literally means to analyze Jesus. Force yourself to think about him. And then the rest of the verse tells you what it is that you should be considering or thinking about in relation to Jesus. He endured. He didn't grow up or get weary. That's the encouragement to us so that we won't grow weary and give up. But it's also true about Jesus. He did not grow weary and give up. 
And what he endured was hostility from sinners on the cross. There, tried by sinful humanity, convicted by sinful humanity, beaten by sinful humanity, nailed to the cross by sinful humanity, mocked by sinful humanity, he endured. That's what we reflected on just last week during our Good Friday celebration. And then if we just think back up to Hebrews chapter 12, verses one and two, we have this large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, lay aside every hindrance, the sin that so easily ensnares us, run with endurance, the race that lies before us, are fixing our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that lay before him. He endured, he didn't give up or grow weary. He endured hostility for sin, from sinners and he did it for the joy that was set before him. The aim here in considering Jesus is that we would follow in his model, that we would endure, that we would not give up, that we would run with endurance the race marked before us, that we would find joy in the process. That's the context. That's where all of this is flowing from. And that's what is going to happen. That's just going to be explained in the remainder of this passage. And the theme, if you want to go back to the questions that you answered a minute ago, the theme is one of discipline, enduring suffering, the disciplining of the Lord. Let me just stop here for a second. This passage is intended to be encouraging. Now, it's a kind of encouragement that comes with difficult truth baked right into it. It crushes some of the sentimentality that often pervades American Christianity, that when we think about God, we just want to think happy thoughts, that when we think about following Jesus, we want it to be comfortable and easy, as if God is up in the sky, looking down on us, just trying to make us happy at all times and to make everything that happens in our lives smooth and easy. This passage forces us to stare straight into the face of the difficult reality that maybe comfort and ease is not God's top priority in our lives. It makes us ask the question, is it possible that God's working in my life or in our lives as a church is about much more than simply my temporary happiness. Now, there's a way that I would like to be able to have a conversation about this passage of scripture. And the ideal version has nothing to do with me talking into a camera and you watching this from home. This is the type of passage of scripture that I'd like to be able to talk about while looking directly into your eyes. I'd love to be able to do that in our sanctuary with us gathered together as a church where it feels like we're a family who's gathered around together to talk about something that's encouraging but difficult. Maybe in an even more ideal sense, this would be the kind of passage that we'd sit across a table and talk about or we'd sit down for a cup of, well, you could get a cup of coffee and I would get a cup of anything else and we could have a conversation about the encouraging but difficult truth that comes in this passage. The encouragement 
is for this reason. Living a life of faithfully enduring in following Jesus is difficult. In fact, let me just run through what some of Hebrews has said since chapter 10 up until this point. In chapter 10, the author of Hebrews was encouraging this small church because they had endured a hard struggle with suffering. He reminded them to think back to the time when they had publicly endured taunts and afflictions. Then in chapter 11, he goes through this long string of very faithful individuals from the Old Testament, but he ends with this real quick list of some things that have happened to New Testament believers. And he says this, some experienced mockings and scourgings as well as bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they died by the sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. They wandered in deserts and on mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. And then he gets to chapter 12 and he says, don't grow weary and give up. Think about Jesus, run with endurance, don't grow weary, don't give up. Up. There's the reminder that Jesus endured hostility from sinners. And then likewise, in verse four, you should have picked up on this when you read it. There's the reality that this could even be worse because he reminds the church, you haven't endured to the point of shedding blood. Hebrews 12 verse 11 says that this discipline is painful. Hebrews 12 verse 12 is an encouragement to Strengthen your tired hands and your weakened knees. Look, if anything is apparent from the middle of Hebrews chapter 10 all the way really through the end of chapter 12, it's that following Jesus faithfully, enduring in faith is difficult. In fact, at times it's painfully difficult. The response to that in the middle of this passage is you can endure. You can do it. You can endure like Jesus, not just like Jesus. You can endure with the strength of Jesus. And you can do it for the joy that's set before you. You can run faithfully, even if that path includes painful suffering and a severe kind of discipline from the Lord. You can strengthen your tired hands and your weakened knees. Not only do you have the son of God in front of you, that's who we look to, Jesus, but you also have God the spirit inside of you and God the father lovingly dealing with you. The author of Hebrews is about to frame all of the difficulty of following Jesus in a broken world through one lens. And that lens is the lens of discipline. The heart of this passage is in Hebrews chapter 12, verse seven. I wanna direct your attention there. Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons first question was, what's the theme of this passage? And that's enduring discipline. The second question was, who's in charge? Who's in control? Let me read verse seven again. Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. Now, there are two ways that we can approach this discipline. And this is how we're gonna kind of work through the passage. We can approach that discipline as drudgery, or we can approach it as delight. And the path you choose will have much to say about whether or not you endure in your faith. 
Before we jump into that, let's step back because this is a hard truth here, one that we cannot run away from in this passage. The explicit context here is persecution. Remember, the end of chapter 11, there was talk about followers of Jesus being sawed in two and bound and in chains and in prison, wandering around in sheepskins and goatskins and hiding out in the mountains. Chapter 12, we're called to consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself. What, What is such hostility? Well, it's reminding these believers that they're enduring a kind of hostility. It's the same such hostility that Jesus endured. So persecution is the direct context here. But then you get to verse seven, endure suffering. And it's been broadened out. So it's not just persecution. It's now we're talking about all the suffering involved in living life in a broken world while trying to follow Jesus. That suffering is causing some believers to either fall away, chapter six, drift away, chapter two, or run away, chapter 10, from their faith in Jesus. And the author of Hebrews is encouraging them to keep running this race, reminding themselves of the faithful that it's possible to run this race, removing all the obstacles that are in front of them, whether hindrances or sin, and retaining a focus on Jesus. And then he says in verse seven, that suffering, that difficulty that happens along this race, God is dealing with you as sons. We'll talk about this in just a minute. That discipline's not punishment. Instead, God's training his people for righteous, responsible, kingdom-minded living. There's no escaping this reality in this passage. God is dealing with you as sons. Now, there's at least one immediate question for us to answer here. What does this mean by discipline exactly? The directions of these uh, two definitions work whether we're talking in Greek from the language that was used here in Hebrews or we're just talking in English. You can think about discipline as punishment. You do something wrong and you get disciplined. Or you can think of discipline as training. It's the act of providing guidance for responsible living. Often, if you're a parent, a teacher, a coach, someone in a leadership position, you'll understand this. You do the training type of discipline so that you might avoid having to do the punishment kind of discipline. Let me just give a quick illustration. I, it was, I was 16 years old. I hadn't had my driver's license very long. Um, my parents rightly, rightly were trying to kind of protect me and saying there were some roads that I should not drive on. Uh, very explicit parts of town where it's just the road wasn't super safe and they didn't want me to drive there. Well, one night in an attempt to make it home before curfew, I took a road that I wasn't supposed to be on and I ran the car off the road into the woods. Um, I wasn't very close to home. It was late. Uh, I had to hitch a ride back to my house and I knew walking into the house, I'm going to get punished and I'm going to get punished because I didn't allow myself the discipline of doing what I should have done in the first place. There's discipline that's training. There's discipline that's punishment. Now, the question again is, what does the author mean here by discipline? Well, let me say this. 
that God's discipline here is not punitive. How do I know that? Why do I say that? Well, I say that because Jesus absorbed all of our punishment for sin. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, all the punishment for that sin fell upon Jesus, not upon you. This is what we celebrated last week. Jesus has taken every drop of the punishment that your sin deserves upon himself. There's none of it left to fall upon you. That means this. Let me just give you an example. You go to work. That would be great if we could just go to work. You go to work and you tell a lie to your boss. You get caught. You're not getting punished by God for lying when you get caught. That's just a natural risk and consequence that comes with choosing to lie. It's part of what happens when we're dishonest. Now, think about it this way. You walk into work, you tell a lie, nothing happens. Then two weeks later, you get unjustly passed over for a promotion or maybe worse, you get beat up in the parking lot by the person that you told a lie about. That would be to kind of try to drop into this scenario, the idea of hostility from sinners. In that instance, You didn't get passed over for the promotion. You didn't get beat up in the parking lot as God's punishment for your lie. Jesus took upon himself all the punishment for sin, all of it, period, every last bit, end of sentence. God does not put you into a double jeopardy situation whereby you have to pay the price for your sin despite Jesus already having done so. Knowing that, The type of discipline that we're talking about here in this passage cannot be believers being disciplined as punishment because of their own sin. It has to be something different. Instead, the discipline of God here is purifying. God is training his people for responsible, righteous, kingdom-minded living. Sometimes that discipline, that purifying discipline is painful. There's another way that this sort of purifying discipline can come into our lives. A lot of times we think of discipline only in terms of we were doing something wrong and we got kind of course corrected. But this kind of training, purifying sort of discipline is something that we use all the time. If you've got kids who are learning how to read, you start with maybe just a a book that's got letters of the alphabet, and then you move up to books that have a little bit uh, more text in there. Then one day, right as your child really gets some confidence, feeling like they're really starting to figure out this whole reading thing, you drop a chapter book into their lap. And they think to themselves, wow, I really thought I had this whole thing down, and then they, they hit me with one of these. It's a type of training. It's saying, you're doing so great, I want you to keep doing well. And so you add a layer of difficulty. Sometimes things are going really well, and that's the moment when the discipline arrives. Why? Because God wants to purify us, to continually train us for righteous, responsible, kingdom-minded living. Now that leads to a second important question and I've already answered this in part, but what is God's role in all of this? 
I'm not going to be able to answer a centuries-old question about the exact nature of God's involvement in suffering and in even the evil that takes place in the world. But let me just give you three biblical examples. I wanna talk just really briefly about Joseph, Job, and Jesus. Joseph, thrown into a pit by his brothers, sold into slavery. They pretend that he's dead. He arrives in a foreign place, works himself into a very trusted role within a high official's house, gets wrongly accused uh, by that official's wife, gets thrown into prison, does very well in that imprisonment environment, works his way into a trusted position, interprets uh, a dream correctly, gets forgotten while he's down there despite a promise of being remembered by a certain individual, languishes in prison, and then at the end of all of that, rises to a place of prominence all the way into kind of the second most powerful person in Egypt. And what does Joseph have to say about that at the end of his life? Joseph, or Genesis 50, verse 20, Joseph is standing across from his brothers and he says, you planned evil against me. Listen to the words here. God planned it for good to bring about the present result. Not God used it for good, not God repurposed it for good, not God took it and made it into something good. You planned evil, God planned it for good. Now, Joseph didn't really do anything to deserve any of that. In fact, in multiple of the situations, he did everything to deserve the opposite. And yet, there he was. Job. Job is, uh, Job chapter one tells us he's the most righteous man living at the time. And then Satan comes to God and is looking for a test case, essentially. And God says the following, have you considered my servant Job? No one else on earth is like him, a man of perfect integrity who fears God and turns away from evil. And then the rest of what happens to Job happens to Job. Again, didn't do anything to deserve it, And it's God who's involved in what happens. And consider Jesus. Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 to 39. Jesus is praying in the garden. He's yet to be arrested, yet to be convicted, yet to be beaten, yet to be mocked, yet to be hung on a cross, yet to die. And there in the garden, he prays. Yet not as I will, but as you will, Lord. Now, here is the struggle in these places. When we read about these things in scripture, it's very easy for us to look at those and say, yes, God is sovereign. He used Joseph in order to bring the Israelite people out of 
uh, one place into Egypt where they would be saved, where they would be saved from a famine. Yes, Job, but he uses Job to make this powerful point about who God is, and we needed to be able to see that. And yes, Jesus, God orchestrated all of that for our salvation, and it's easy for us to think about and to affirm God's sovereignty over all things in someone else's life, and then really hard for us to do that in our own. I heard a pastor just today by the name of Ed Moore ask the question, do you believe strongly enough in the sovereignty of God to drink it yourself? A fantastic question. What is God's role in this kind of discipline? There's mystery here. Mystery that in this particular sermon, we don't have time to talk all the way through. Is God allowing these kinds of evil, permitting them to happen? ordaining this hostility from sinners? Is he totally unconnected with it? How do human responsibility and God's sovereignty coexist in these types of situations? Those are fantastic questions that have puzzled theologians, pastors, and Christians for thousands of years. For our purpose today, I want to land here. Our understanding of the often painful and severe discipline and grace of God that comes into our lives ought to be broad enough to understand the following reality. This is a quote from John Piper. He says this, the same sovereignty that could stop the discipline but doesn't is the very sovereignty that sustains our soul in it. If we've got the right lens to look through, this is not punishment kind of discipline. It's a purifying kind of discipline. We've got two options, drudgery or delight. And that is what the passage deals with explicitly. Look at verses five and six. It's a quotation from Proverbs chapter three, verses 11 and 12. My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or lose heart when you are reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son he receives. starts that quotation by saying, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? It's like the author of Hebrews is saying, hey, think about what scripture says. That should always be our instinct. When we're confronted with anything, positive or negative, joyful or painful, discipline sort of minded situations or blessing situations, our response should always be, let me take a second and think about or consult scripture. The passage quoted from Proverbs is given as a reminder that we can choose to loathe the discipline of God. We can actually have a posture toward the discipline of God that is one that is of drudgery. And when we view the Lord's discipline as drudgery, we either disengage or we will become disheartened. We can disengage. My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly. We can take it lightly, just be totally indifferent to it. When I was young, I had uh, a problem with rolling my eyes at authority figures. In fact, the only time I ever got sent to the principal's office in elementary school was because in third grade, a teacher told me to do something that I didn't want to do, and I rolled my eyes at her. I took her suggestion very lightly. I just totally disengaged. She sent me to the principal's office. I sat there in the principal's office and I thought, this is not gonna be any big deal. The principal lives up the street from me. We're like really good buds. And so the principal asks me, Tim, why are you here? You're not usually one to be sitting here in my office. And I said, well, I rolled my eyes at my teacher. At which 
point, he asked me to explain the story, and then he started to tell me about why it was that I shouldn't do that. And what did I do to the principal? I rolled my eyes. Just disengaging. Whatever. I don't deserve this. That's one way that we can choose to view the Lord's discipline as drudgery. The other way is that we can become disheartened. My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or lose heart when you are reproved by him. We can become disheartened, be overwhelmed by it. And the author of Proverbs, the author of Hebrews is saying, don't do that. Don't be overwhelmed. Don't lose heart when you are reproved by the Lord. A reproof is a stern admonishment, right? If disengaging looks like saying to ourselves, whatever, I don't deserve this. Being disheartened looks like saying to ourselves, what did I do to deserve this? I will offer this. The times in my life when I'm most susceptible to feeling overwhelmed by what is happening in my life are the times when I allow myself to think that rather than God dealing with me like a son, sin, brokenness, or evil are instead just running rampant over me like I'm a pebble in a rushing river being tossed to and fro. I think to myself, what did I do to deserve this? I get disheartened. The author of Hebrews uses Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12 in order to say, don't do either one of those. Don't disengage. Don't be disheartened. Don't think about the Lord's discipline as drudgery. There's another option. That option is delight. And the second half of Proverbs starts, of that Proverbs quote starts to set that up. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Verse seven, endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. Rather than drudgery, we can choose to view the Lord's discipline as delight. And in order to view the Lord's discipline as delight, we need to know its source and we need to cherish its outcomes. First, know its source. God is dealing with you as sons. Now, Notice what the passage acknowledges. We can have delight in what the Lord is doing in our lives and still not love the discipline, but love the discipliner. We're encouraged to endure because discipline is hard. Endure suffering, whether that's persecution at the hands of the hostility of sinners or suffering in the more general sense, which is where verse seven takes the conversation. We're encouraged to have a disposition that is able to delight in the discipline that we face because we know the source. You are a loved child of God. And the purifying discipline that comes into your life is evidence that the Lord is dealing with you as a loved child of God. I had a coach in college, um, Typically what would happen is after you ran like a best time the weekend before at a meet, he would show up the next uh, week at practice and he would say, hey, things are going really, really well. We're gonna keep getting faster today, but it's gonna hurt. You knew why he was doing it. He wanted the best for you. He was training you. And he knew that in order for you to go forward, it was going to be painful. Verses eight and nine. But if you are without discipline, 
which all received, you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had human fathers discipline us and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the father of spirits and live? Look, when it comes to purifying sorts of discipline, there's an argument here from lesser to greater. You had earthly fathers, they disciplined you. You respected them. You've got a perfect, loving, heavenly father who disciplines you and that should create reverence for him. Now, I totally understand that some may have trouble with this because maybe you had a father who disciplined you not always with your best interest in mind, but instead with a warped and broken kind of vindictiveness. Here's what I want to say to you. There's nothing vindictive in the purifying discipline of your perfect, loving, heavenly father. You are his child. He purchased you with the blood of his son on the cross. There's nothing vindictive in his purifying discipline. He's purifying you, training you for a life of righteous, responsible, kingdom-minded living. Life is not tossing you around like a pebble in a rushing river. You're not tumbling down a crashing set of rapids, hoping not to be smashed into pieces. Instead, you're like this large chunk of marble. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are God's workmanship and God is chiseling away at you like a fine sculpture. When Michelangelo carved what is arguably the most famous statue in history, Michelangelo's David, he famously said that all he had to do was carve away everything that wasn't David. Your sovereign, loving, perfect father knows precisely who he is molding you into. And when he disciplines, even in moments of painful, purifying discipline, he is graciously carving away the parts that he knows cannot remain. And in my estimation, if we knew the exact image that God was forming us into for the end, we would run toward that discipline rather than disengage or be disheartened. That's a bold statement but I make it in view of the second reason why we are encouraged here to have delight rather than drudgery in the painful discipline that we are to faithfully endure. And it's because we can cherish the outcomes. Look at this string of words starting in verse 10. For they, earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them, but he, heavenly father, does it for our benefit. That's the first one our benefit, literally our advantage. What the Lord is doing in your life is to your advantage. Even when it hurts, there is benefit. Like my college coach, we're gonna get faster today, but it is going to hurt. There's benefit to it. Why? So that we can share his holiness. That's the second outcome, our holiness, literally our purity. God is often using the discipline in our lives to refashion the taste buds of our soul, helping us to crave the things of holiness rather than the things of sin. And though we may not know it at the time, obedience to God offers us a taste much sweeter than the counterfeit that sin offers. Sometimes breaking the chains of those ties to sin requires that God do some severe, painful, loving, purifying discipline in our life, and it feels like suffering. But when it comes from a loving father who knows that the things of holiness are ultimately for our benefit, we can fix our mind, consider Jesus who endured with joy set before him, and we can move forward. We can continue 
running. Verse 11, no discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit. So our peace, a wholeness that comes from being free from worry. What's on the other side of our discipline? Greater peace as we rest in the Lord. A peace, a wholeness that comes from knowing we're living, walking in the will of the Lord. And it's a peaceful fruit of righteousness. That's the fourth outcome. Our righteousness, a right standing before the Lord. Literally, the idea is similar to our holiness. Carries with it the idea of walking or living rightly in the Lord's Lord's eyes. God will do the very best thing for us. He's a loving father who will use purifying discipline to shape us into righteous, responsible, kingdom-minded individuals. He's proven that by sending us his son for our benefit, for our holiness, for our peace, for our righteousness. And so we look to the cross where Jesus endured the hostility of sinners against himself. And there we find the strength not to give up or grow weary. And there we find the strength and power necessary to, as verse 12 says, strengthen our tired hands and weakened knees. The reason we can endure faithfully. It's because there on the cross, we see the perfect model. Jesus understood who was in control of the hostility that he was facing. He trusted the Father, not my will, but yours. And he saw the joy set before him, his people's benefit, his people's holiness, his people's peace, his people's righteousness. He saw the day that he would ascend to the Father's right hand and while sitting there ruling and reigning, usher you in to spend eternity alongside him in the presence of the Father. And so what did Jesus do? By the will and the design of the Father, he set his face toward Jerusalem that he might go to the cross. Then he lugged that old cross up a hill so that he could be nailed to it. And then he stayed on it so that our benefit, our holiness, our peace, and our righteousness might be purchased by his blood. And now, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we consider Jesus as we endure discipline, not as a drudgery, but as delight, because it means our Father loves us enough to purify us for our benefit. Let me end with this. If you've not ever placed your faith in Jesus Christ, there will come a day where you endure punitive discipline that punitive discipline will last for eternity. The only means by which you can be absolutely certain that that doesn't await you for an infinite eternal future is by placing your faith in Jesus Christ, who for your benefit, your holiness, your peace, and your righteousness absorbed all the punishment of your sin in your place that you might be purified by the purifying discipline of the Lord for the rest of your life. We're gonna do something a little bit different as we close our service this morning. Rather than immediately going into a time of response and worship, I wanna build some time for you to reflect and respond. You might feel like you're in a season of painful discipline right now and you need to just take some time and pray that the Lord would open your eyes to how it is that he's dealing with you lovingly as a father deals with their child, how it is that he's working for your benefit, how it is that he's helping you move toward holiness, how it is that there's peace in his will on the other side of this, how it is that you might walk more righteously as a result of this discipline. And so uh, 
Brian and Melody and Corey, they're going to lead us in a song, but you don't necessarily have to sing. In fact, if you need to take some time and just do some business with the Lord, I encourage you to just let this song be sung over you. If you want to join in and sing, that's fantastic. But use a few minutes here to process with the Lord and then join in in song uh, as we close with the song, Behold Our God.